0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Well, we are starting a new series this morning. Hey guys, great to see you back. Uh, in the book of First Samuel, who's excited for First Samuel? Yes. Only at Shore Community Church do you get that kind of response. You say, who's excited for 1 Samuel? <laughs> yeah, all right. That's great. That is great. Um, I, <laughs> I was just thinking this week. So for those of you that haven't been here that long, like this, we're, so we're starting a series this week in 1 Samuel, and in case you think this is going to be over in a couple of weeks, that's not how we roll here at Shore. Some of you have been around long enough to know this is going to take a while, and we're going to settle in for this. Uh, this is going to take the bulk of the year in this book. Uh, and that's not, it's not that usual, honestly, um, to do this. It's called expository preaching, it's just part of the DNA of our church. I've been doing this now for 17 years. We take a book of the Bible every year, and we work through it systematically, consecutively. Uh, and uh, I think every year I believe in it more as a way of deepening our faith as a church, deepening our discipleship leading us closer to Jesus, deepening our understanding of Scripture rather than jumping all over the map, really getting to grips with a chunk of God's Word, and then letting that lead us closer and closer to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So this is where we're going to be. It's been great having some conversations with you after I mentioned last week that we were doing 1 Samuel, and I I threw out that little challenge uh, to read the first chapter. And some of you have actually listened to that and did that, which amazed me. Uh, So, well, done. I shouldn't be surprised, because I know that you guys are up for this. Uh, But that will help, and so you can continue doing that each week. Whichever passage we are looking at, just read ahead. Read the next half chapter, or the next chapter, and you'll bring a lot more to these times. What that will do is help to integrate Sunday mornings with the rest of your life, uh, and you will have a more integrated faith where What we're learning here, then it's spilling over into your devotional times. It's helping your own reading of Scripture, and it's all coming together. So set yourself that goal this year to read through, work through the book of 1 Samuel. Some of you are already doing that. Uh, it doesn't, you don't need to necessarily do deep study, but just the reading of Scripture in your own time with the Lord is so valuable. It's just so good. Even if you don't feel like it's doing anything, it is. It's doing something. It is shaping your heart in ways you may not even perceive. So there's a little challenge, an ongoing challenge, and we have discussion sheets for this series uh, if you want to study them in life groups. Again, great way of integrating, integrating what's going on in your life group with what we're doing here on Sunday morning. So those sheets, are, you can get them on our, on our website, on the app, or uh, there's hard copies at the back. Let me just say a quick word about this book of the Bible, just to kind of place this in context for you, and then we're going to look specifically this morning at the first chapter. So 1 Samuel I know it seems like an obscure sort of book of the Bible, but it's a really pivotal book, and it's a very transitional book in the Bible. First Samuel comes out of this era of the judges. So, you know, the book called Judges, that was a time, several hundred years, where Israel was led by judges, uh, not, not wig and gown judges, but more military leaders, and they ruled over Israel. Uh, First Samuel comes in at the end of that era. Uh, This is also around the time of Ruth, if you want to place that book in the Bible. This is the era of Ruth's story, same time that 1 Samuel is happening. Ruth is there in the background. And so Samuel is coming out of that time when Israel is ruled by judges, and 1 Samuel takes us through to a new era in Israel's history where the nation is ruled by kings, So this monarchy, and for those of you, some of you here a couple of years ago when we did the royal series with Grace City, you'll remember some of that because we talked about a number of the kings of Israel, and we will get to some of those kings because in 1 Samuel particularly, we have the rise and the fall of Saul, the king Saul, first king of Israel, and we have the rise of David. So we're even going to get to the story of David and Goliath. There's a reference point for you. That's in 1 Samuel. So we don't have all of David's story in 1 Samuel, but we have the rise of the house of David. And so the beginning. So Samuel kind of sits in this space between the judges and the monarchy as Israel goes through this huge transition, this very turbulent transition, and the person who kind of holds that together, holds these two eras together, is Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And we will follow his story right from birth to death. As we go through the book of 1 Samuel. So that's just a big picture to kind of put this into the context of the biblical story. Hopefully helps you to place a little bit of the, of the narratives as we go along. So for this morning, we are going to start in on the first 20 verses of 1 Samuel. Uh, most of chapter 1 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, good time to open it up. Try and bring your Bible along if you've got one uh, or on your device. Having it in front of you is great. Okay, We're here to look at Scripture and let, let that speak. So as much as you're able to engage with this uh, that's really helpful. We'll have the words on screen, of course. Sarah Gertzen is going to come and read this passage for us. First Samuel chapter one. Thank you, Sarah.
1: There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerahim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever, whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you get? Will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him.
0: Hmm. Thanks, Sarah. Well done on the name pronunciations. (laughs) That was great. If anyone else is keen to do some readings of Scripture as we go along, just let me know. Let Anna know. Uh, And and by the way, just on that, because we're working through biblical narrative, there will be some mornings where we have reasonably long passages to read, uh, and I just want us to be okay with that. Uh, Sometimes we'll just do selections of the text, but don't worry if these passages are long. See it as part of worship. To sit with the public reading of Scripture is actually really good for us. And to see that is just soak that in and see it as an act of worship. So that's a way of thinking about the reading of some of these longer passages. Okay, Uh, if you were to think about the great people, the great heroes of the Bible, you think about the great big names, you know, of Scripture, you'd probably think of people like David. You'd think of people like, I don't know, who? Moses? Abraham, Paul, yes, Jesus, who was that, Drew? Elijah, yeah, yeah, great prophets, Isaiah, Peter, you know, these are kind of the names that pop out. We probably wouldn't think of Hannah, would we? Not one of the names that maybe come, I mean, it does now because we've just read this story, but normally uh, Hannah probably wouldn't be on the list, partly, I think, because she's a woman, and sadly, we just don't tend to take as much notice of woman in Scripture, which is a problem. Um, and partly because her story is just kind of obscure. It's tucked away here in First Samuel, and it only takes up a couple of chapters. Uh, she only, after chapter 2, really Hannah's story fades from the scene. We don't know much more about her after that. Uh, but as I've come back to the story of Hannah, she is just such a wonderful woman of faith. Like, she's just got such a great story. She's just got such a beautiful heart, This open heart before God. She seems like a really authentic, genuine, uh, vibrant, trusting, dependent person. We have so much that we can learn from this woman. And so we're going to sit with her story just for the first couple of weeks of the series, uh, this week and next week, looking at Hannah's story. In many ways, uh, Hannah has pretty much just about everything that a woman in her time could want. So she, she is a woman who has a reasonable social standing and probably reasonable resources and level of wealth. She's married to this guy, Elkanah. And when you look just the verse, first verse with all those tricky names, that's there to tell you, there's four generations are listed of Elkanah, her husband. And that tells you that he's a man of good standing. It tells you he's a good citizen. He's got a good pedigree. He comes from good stock. That's what that's telling you. And so this was a family that was probably fairly well off. They were, they were regarded as good citizens within Israel. Uh, even the fact that Elkanah has two wives, I mean, that is morally questionable. But it, at the time, it, it, it indicated that a person had a reasonable level of wealth and status to have two wives, So we're learning something about this family, that they were fairly comfortable, fairly well-off. Hannah has a husband who loves her, like Elkanah genuinely loves Hannah. There's a loving marriage, and a lot of marriages weren't like that in these days. Husbands would just treat their wives like property and chattels. And, and Hannah's got a husband who really has time for her and really loves her. So she has so much, um, but she doesn't have the one thing she really wants, which is a baby. What Hannah really desires and what she doesn't have is a child. And so Hannah struggles with infertility. And straight away, as soon as you learn that in the text, then you're just plunged into this world of pain. And you realize, like, for Hannah, all this other stuff doesn't really matter. All the the status that she had, whatever level of wealth she had, even the fact she had a husband who loved her, it's just like that loses its shine because the one thing that she really wanted was a baby. And she couldn't. She couldn't have a child. And so this is just a source of unbelievable agony and unbelievable pain for Hannah. And the struggle that she has with infertility is a struggle that is, it is timeless, and it is not limited to this time or this culture by any stretch. It's a struggle that some of you know personally. It's a struggle that many women have today, many couples, many women, the struggle of infertility. It is just one of the most painful, brutal, horrible things that people have to carry, um, Anna and I had only the smallest little taste of this Um, when we were thinking about having a family, and Anna had two miscarriages, uh, one before we had our first son and one after we had Josh, both around Christmas time, which made it even harder. And in some ways I'm even hesitant to bring it up because that is nothing compared to the infertility struggles that so many people have, which is often a long, grueling, Agonizing journey. Uh, but I mention it only to say that we, I, I feel like we just had the smallest, tiniest little glimpse of a taste of what that battle is like. Just a little taste of the heartbreaking journey that infertility is. It must just be one of the most painful things that human beings have to go through. And for some of you, that is just a very, has been or is a very, very real struggle. Let me just say something about this issue of infertility uh, because it's here in the text and so we want to deal with it. Uh, You read in verse 5 and 6 that in Hannah's case, the Lord had closed her womb. And so it seems like in Hannah's case that this was something that God intended because God knew that eventually he was going to give her a baby. Eventually she was going to get Samuel. Eventually she was going to become pregnant and she was going to have a child. But it is easy maybe to misread that or misapply that and start assuming that when someone struggles with infertility today, it's because God is punishing them or because God is judging them or because this is somehow an act of God. And I just want to say categorically that is not the case. You can't look at Hannah's story here and assume this is normative for the way God works at all times and all places. This is, a, this is a mo- an exceptional moment in the biblical story as God is preparing to raise up this new prophet. But this does not mean that if you are struggling with infertility that somehow God's caused that to happen. And if you start going down that path of believing that somehow this is God's judgment or punishment or something like that, it will lead you into, into guilt. It will lead you into unbelievable Shame. It will lead you to anger and bitterness and resentment, and that is not what God wants for you. God is not the author of infertility. Um, The struggle, the battle of infertility, happens because we live in a broken, fallen world, and that brokenness affects our bodies that don't work the way they are intended and designed to work sometimes. It's part of the groaning of creation. Our bodies groaning for liberation, for freedom from all this, but God doesn't cause that to happen. God's heart breaks when that happens. God grieves with you if that's your struggle. His heart breaks with you. He feels that pain. He is with you in the midst of it. He's not causing it and judging you and punishing you in some way. So please don't start thinking down the wrong path with this and applying exactly what happened to Hannah to your own circumstance. Infertility is not an act of God. It is the challenge and the struggle of living in a broken world. And just while we're on that very briefly, we do have at Shaw a support group uh, or a support person for women who are struggling facing infertility, uh, and that's led by Sarah, who came and read the scripture passage this morning. So Sarah coordinates a little group called If and When uh, for women who are experiencing miscarriage, pregnancy loss, stillbirth, those kinds of challenges, and uh, she, you are welcome to contact Sarah. For support, it's, very, it's done very confidentially. We don't talk about it that much. It's very, it's very private. It's very low-key. Uh, but if you would like that support and companionship, you're welcome. We'll just leave that uh, slide up for a couple of minutes. You can jot down Sarah's email address. So Hannah has the struggle with infertility. And for her, in Hannah's case, this is made so much worse by this other woman, Penina. And the way that Penina acts in this passage is in a sense understandable because it comes out of Penina's own pain that she's the other woman. And clearly, she is not the woman who's loved by Elkanah. So Elkanah, he loves Hannah, doesn't really love Penina. So she, Penina is feeling aggrieved. She, she doesn't have the love of her husband. But that causes her to act in some awful ways towards Hannah. She's described in this text as Hannah's rival. And she goes out of her way to provoke Hannah and to irritate Hannah. In other words, she's just rubbing it in Hannah's face all the time, the fact that Hannah can't have a baby, which is horrible. And, and, and you don't know exactly how that happened. Maybe she was openly mocking her and jeering at her, making comments. Maybe it's just because the thing is with Penina, like you've got Hannah who is infertile, and you've got Penina who is super fertile. And she's got all these sons and daughters. And so maybe she's just parading her children... In front of Hannah and talking them up, and you know, sending Hannah all their you know, school certificates and trophies and things just to kind of rub it in Hannah's face. And she's posting all that on Instagram, and Hannah's just, you know, it's just hard for Hannah dealing with all that when it's in your face. Um, maybe it's just from Penina's end, maybe it's just you can imagine sometimes even that look that she might have given Hannah. Just that look, you know, you can say so much with your eyes, can't you? That look that just says you're worthless, you're nothing because women had a lot of their social status, bound up in having children. And you can just imagine how Penina would have used that against Hannah. So that just added insult to injury for Hannah and just increased the grief that she felt because of her struggle. So each year, this family, they would go up to the tabernacle of the Lord, this place called Shiloh, and they'd worship God there, offer sacrifices. So this was Hannah and Penina and Elkanah and all of Penina's children, They'd all go on this big journey, and Penina was at her worst during those times, and she'd just be making life miserable for Hannah, uh, just saying horrible things. And Elkanah tries to, like, he picks up on the fact that Hannah's upset, and (laughs) so he does the thing that guys do he offers her meat. That's his solution. He's like, Why don't you have a double portion of meat? That's how we solve problems. You seem upset, have some meat. Um, Amazingly, that didn't work for Hannah. I can't understand why. This is just a winning strategy. But nope, she wasn't interested in just having another steak. Her problems ran a little bit deeper than that. Uh, And so one night, after they'd finished eating and drinking, Hannah is just feeling miserable. She's just in the bottom of a dark pit emotionally. And so she goes and she sits by the doorpost of the tabernacle. And she just, in the depths of anguish, prays to God. And, and this prayer that she prays in verse 11, she says, she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, the Hebrew is Yahweh Almighty, Yahweh Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. So the vow that Hannah's making there is called the vow of the Nazarite. That word's not there, but that's what this is. It's a Nazarite vow. And to become a Nazarite was to be set apart from the rest of Israel and dedicated to the Lord. And you would go and live at the tabernacle and you would function as a priest or a Levite. That's where you would be based. And you'd never get a haircut. That was one of the, was one of the things. So Harrison he would make a great uh, Levite. So you'd have the long hair eventually. And that, the thing is, with a Nazarite vow, usually it was very short term. Sometimes just a few days, um, up to 30 days would generally be the accepted length of time. But you see how remarkable this is, that Hannah says, God, if you give me a son, I'll, I'll make him a Nazarite for life. And you, can you hear the desperation of this woman, like saying to God, like she knows that what that means is she will send him to the tabernacle at a young age, and this is how the story goes, and she'll only then get to visit him once a year. But she's so desperate to have a baby, she would rather have a child she only sees once a year than have no child at all. That's how desperate her mother's heart was. So she's just crying out to God in the midst of her grief and her anguish. And Eli, the priest, is sitting there by the tabernacle, and he's watching all of this happen. And he's watching her pray, and, and, and it says he observes like her mouth is moving, but you can't hear any words. So she's kind of just talk, she's praying in her heart, is what the text says. And her mouth is kind of lips moving, but, but the, the prayer is just between her heart and the heart of God. But Eli looks at this and he's just thinking, what in the world is going on here? What's this woman up to? Because, you know, the tabernacle is a place of like where you pray the right prayers. And it's about liturgy and formality and organized religion. And this is like, I love the way Hannah just cuts through all of that. She's not interested in praying the right prayers. She's just pouring out her heart to God. But Eli gets the wrong end of the stick and he thinks she's drunk. So he says, put away your wine, woman. And then Hannah responds to Eli and says this, verse 15. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Do you notice all the emotive language in there? Look at those words. Anguish and grief and pouring out my soul to the Lord. Uh, What Hannah is doing here is praying a prayer of lament. That's what this is. She's teaching us to pray. She's teaching us to lament. Lament is crying out to God in the middle of your pain. And crying out to God in the struggle and in the battle and in all the hard things you're going through. And it's bringing all of that to God. That's what lament is. That's what this prayer is. And this prayer of Hannah's then spills over into all these beautiful psalms of lament that we have. And her words here are captured in many of the psalms that you read. Like Psalm 142 that says, I pour out before him my complaint. I tell him my trouble. Or Psalm 62 pour out your hearts to God, for He is our refuge. Can you hear the same language? It's exactly what Hannah was doing, pouring out her soul, pouring out her heart, like she's just bringing all this gut-wrenching pain that she feels because she can't have a child, all this pain that she feels because of the cruelty that's coming at her from Penina, and this this unbelievable unkindness, and this journey that's just gone on year after year after year, she can't see any end to it, and all of that emotion is just bubbling up and spilling over, and she just pours out her heart to God. Now, here's my question. When was the last time you prayed like that? When was the last time you came anywhere near praying like Hannah prays? Hannah's in the Bible to teach us something, isn't she? She's showing us how to pray. She's teaching us what it looks like not just to pray the right words and not just to pray these scripted, safe, polite prayers. Because I know like you, I know you're a very polite congregation. I know you guys. You're really polite. But sometimes doesn't our politeness get in the way? Not in the way we relate to each other. Yeah, we want to be polite. But sometimes, if you can hear what I'm trying to say, our politeness gets in the way of the raw, real, rugged prayers that we're invited to pray to God. The prayer from the heart the gut-wrenching prayers to God. Like we're allowed to pray those prayers because we are carrying stuff, aren't we? Like we come in here today and we are carrying some heavy burdens. I guarantee you. Like in every row of this auditorium, there's a broken heart. There are people here carrying really, really hard things today. And it's easy, I know, because I do it sometimes, to walk into church and just stuff that down. And we take the suck it up buttercup kind of approach. So I've just got to plow on. Just gotta slog it out, especially at church. Gotta put my church face on, have everyone see it's all together, everything's good here. But underneath that, like we are carrying real pain. Some of you right now are dealing with real stuff like relational pain. Some of you it's it's there's someone or there's a relationship that's just really hard right now. It's just really, really difficult. Some of you it's it's your finances or maybe tied to your business. And you're looking at across this year, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to make this. I don't know. Even getting from now to Christmas, I'm not sure how this is going to work. And that that sits on you. That stress of your finances, that stress of your business, it sits on you. Some of you, it is the mental and emotional anguish. It's the battle of anxiety. Some of you, it's the battle of depression that is sitting on you right now. It's just a heavy, heavy load. Some of you, it's physical pain. It's the pain of your bodies, it's sickness, it's some illness, it's, it's disability, it's a long-term health issue, which is just exhausting and just weighing you down. For others of you, it's something going on in your family. It might not even be something you personally are going through, but someone close to you is going through something really, really hard, and that is a heavy burden that you're carrying. We've all got stuff, haven't we? Can we just be honest enough to admit it? Like we're just carrying stuff. And it's easy just to kind of pray these surface-level prayers to God. You know, please help me with this, Lord, and I give this to you, and, and sing the songs, I surrender all. You know, we can mouth the words, can't we? But what about actually learning to pray with Hannah? What about actually, like, God invites us to come to Him. We spend all our mental and emotional energy just trying to fix it, and it all goes into, like, what do I need to do to solve this issue? Fix this problem. How do we work it out financially? How do I get my my mind in a better place? What do I have to do to try and make this relationship work? Like, there's absolutely a place for all of that, of course. We work through stuff and we figure out solutions. But all the while, God is standing there saying, Come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It's the words of Jesus. It's the invitation of God. But how often are we just too busy trying to figure it out, fix it, solve it, rationalize it, that we don't take up that invitation and we never actually bring it to God? Or bringing it to God is the last thing that we do after we've done everything else. He says, come to me. Bring it to me. Bring those burdens to me. Bring that stress. Bring that pain. Let it surface in the presence of the Lord and hand it over to Him. He is willing to take it. He delights in taking it. You're not annoying Him by talking to Him about that thing. You're not frustrating him. You're not taking his time away from dealing with more serious issues. Don't worry about that. God's big enough to deal with a whole lot of things at once. He can multitask. He just invites you to come honestly and just hand it over and say, God, I just can't. I just can't anymore. I'm just at the end. I don't have it, God. I can't. I just, I throw myself upon you. And do you know what? He is a God so full of mercy. He just loves you. And his heart is so drawn towards you. He's a God full of mercy and compassion, and he just delights in hearing his children come honestly before him and lay their burdens down in his presence and talk to them from their heart about what is really going on. He sees it all anyway. Why are you trying to hide it from him? He knows exactly what's happening. Why are you not showing him? Just have that honest conversation with God. Is there something that you're carrying that you really haven't brought before God? Is there something that you're going through And in all of your worrying about it, you've never actually thought, you know what, I'm going to bring this before the Lord, and I'm just going to lay it down and surrender it to him. Maybe that's the step that Hannah is encouraging you to take today. So Hannah finishes praying, and then Eli, the priest, realizes what's going on. And and then he changes, like he changes from being grumpy and accusing her of being drunk, and, and his whole demeanor changes. And then he says to Hannah in verse 17, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And Hannah says in verse 18, May your servant find favor in your eyes. You know that word favor, it's the same word as grace. It's the same word used for gracious. God is gracious, finding favor in the eyes. May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then listen to this. Then she went away and ate something. Why is that significant? Because it's a sign of your anxiety levels reducing. She'd lost her appetite because of anxiety. Now that's starting to go down. Her appetite's starting to return. And her face was no longer downcast. What I find remarkable about that verse is that nothing has changed in Hannah's situation. Think about that. She's not pregnant. Not yet. She's not, she didn't suddenly become miraculously pregnant like Mary. It's not like anything ostensibly has changed in Hannah's circumstance right now. I know, I know. It, it gets there, but we're not there yet. In verse 18, nothing has changed. But what's shifted is something in Hannah's soul. What's shifted is Hannah's heart because she's been encouraged. She's received some encouragement. And so her anxiety's dropped a little bit. And her face is a bit brighter. Her face was no longer down. She's got a little bit more spark. She's, re- she's found a little bit of joy because she's been encouraged. And it was God encouraging her, but who does he use to encourage her? Eli the priest, isn't that great? It comes through the words of another. It comes through someone else. And Eli has become an encouragement to Hannah. When you are going through something difficult, and some of you, this is right now today, you need an Eli. You need someone who is going to speak some words of encouragement to you. Because if you choose just to go through this on your own, as an island, just trying to slog it out yourself, you might think you're being big and brave but you are just asking to go deeper and deeper into that hole. You need an Eli who will speak some words of encouragement to you. You need to find an Eli, someone not someone who's going to fix it all, not someone who's going to come along, give you all the answers, and make everything better, not someone who's going to just take over your story with their story, but someone who is just going to hold your story and listen and just be there for you and journey through that thing that you're going with. If you're struggling this morning, is there someone in your life that you can reach out to? Send them a text, seriously. Send them a WhatsApp message and say, can I catch up with you this week? I'm struggling, I need prayer. I need some help. Draw alongside that person. And let me challenge you with this. If you're in a reasonably stable place right now, could you be an Eli for someone else? Because I guarantee you, there's a lot of Hannahs here today. There's a whole lot of Hannahs sitting in the room and watching online, and they need, every one of them needs an Eli. And so if you're able to, could you look around you? Who is within your circle who is within? Who, who do you know? Who are you aware of? Or just ask God to bring someone to mind. And listen, you don't have to be a counselor, a therapist, guru, whatever. It is as simple as sending someone you know a text and just say, I just want you to know you're on my mind and my heart and I'm praying for you. Do you know how meaningful it is? Well, you do because maybe you've got a text like that sometimes. And it just means the world to know someone else has even thought of you and is lifting you up before the Lord. I've had people like that in my life who have just encouraged me different times. Sometimes they don't even realize they're being used by God at particular moments, just when I've needed it, to speak that word of encouragement into my heart. And so you look around, and is there someone this week who's hurting, who's carrying something that you could be an Eli for, and just let them know they're not alone, that you are praying for them and your heart is with them. So then Hannah finishes her prayer. She goes away. She's no longer downcast. And early the next morning, they head home. And in the course of time, Hannah does get pregnant. And Samuel, little baby Samuel, does come along. And Hannah's prayer is answered. And I know that we can get to the end of the chapter and feel like they all lived happily ever after. And we can get to the end of the chapter and feel like my story is going to end exactly the same way. And you know as well as I do, for some people that is the case, and for others it's not. But for some people, the struggle with infertility ends with a baby, like Hannah, and for some people it does not. And I don't want us to take away from Hannah's story this expectation that if you just pray long enough and hard enough, God is going to give you that thing. If I just pray long enough, God's going to come through. He's going to give me that thing that I need, that promotion at work. I've got to get it. I'm sure if I pray hard enough. Or if I just have enough faith, then I'm going to get that job, or I'm going to get a husband and wife, or I'm going to get a baby, or whatever's going to happen, or I'm I'm going to receive this healing, physical healing. Sometimes God will step in. In the mystery of God, I don't know why. Sometimes for one person and not for another. Sometimes God will answer. Other times it seems like God is silent, and those are hard times. Sometimes we pray our heart out and we pour our heart out and we still don't get the answer that we want. Those are hard. But even in those times, even in those times where you pray and nothing seems to happen and God doesn't seem to answer, even then we have an encouragement. Even then we have a hope. Even then we have a promise. In fact, we have a promise that's even greater than the promise that Hannah had. We've got something even greater than Hannah had in the story. Because Hannah is praying to a God who, who, who loves her and God empathizes and, and he, he's compassionate and gracious. But as we pray to God now, we pray to a God who has suffered. We pray to a God who himself knows suffering firsthand because he's been there. Because he is a suffering God. Because 1,200 years after Hannah, a man knelt in a garden and prayed, God, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Very similar kind of prayer to what Hannah prayed. Jesus knelt in a garden, and he poured his heart out to God. And he cried out, God, if there is any way out of this. And he was overcome with distress and with sorrow to the point that his sweat became drops of blood on the ground. He's pouring out his heart to God. And God didn't answer that prayer, did he? God stayed silent in that moment, and Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of the struggles and suffering that we face in our lives. Did you know that? That Jesus, when Jesus died, he didn't just die for your sin. He also died for your suffering. If you don't believe that, listen to Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Not just our sin, not just the things you've done wrong, but also the things that have been done to you. And the things that have been taken from you and the things that have been robbed of you in this life, Jesus took those as well. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows and he was familiar with pain. So on the cross, Jesus took up all that rubbish that you are having to deal with and bear and contend with in your life. He took it up, not just like general suffering, not just a nameless sea of faces, but you think right now, the thing that you are struggling with, Jesus took that upon himself, that anxiety, That is crippling you, that was nailed into the hands of Jesus. That depression that comes upon you like a suffocating blanket, that was nailed into the feet of Jesus on the cross. That physical chronic pain that you are feeling, that was born in the body of Jesus on the cross. That stress that is coming upon you because of the relationship or the finance or the business, whatever it is, that stress was born. In the body of Jesus, that deep wound from years and years and years ago that has never really healed in your life because of something that happened to you maybe decades ago, that wound was carried in the body of Jesus on the cross. This is what he has done for us. He's carried all of our struggles, that pain, that grief, that anguish you are feeling. Jesus bore it in his own flesh, and he died for it. And because he bore it then, he will bear it now. Because he carried it for you then, he will carry it for you today. And he says to you, whatever you are carrying right now, he draws near to you in the middle of that. And he says, let me carry it for you. I've suffered for you. My body's been broken for you. My blood has been poured out for this. Let me carry it. Let me carry it. And he draws near to us right in the middle of what we're going through. He doesn't promise he's going to fix it all, change all of our circumstances, make our situation immediately better. But he says, I'm going to be present with you, and my presence is enough for you. Jesus gives you his presence, and that's sufficient for what you're going through. He is truly enough for all that you are facing. He is truly sufficient for everything that you're going through. And when that burden gets even bigger, all that shows you is that Christ's presence is even greater than you thought it was. And when another thing gets loaded onto your plate on top of all the stuff you're already dealing with, all you learn is that Christ is even more sufficient for that because every problem you face, every trouble you go through, every affliction you are called to bear is outmatched by the beauty and the mercy and the love of Jesus. He's more than enough for you. He's more than enough for you. It's like the old hymn says, he gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When it gets harder, his grace gets greater. When the pit gets deeper, his heart expands for you. When the next thing comes on, his mercy just keeps on enlarging and expanding to cover all that you are facing. Jesus is enough. And he's saying to you this morning, my grace truly is sufficient for you. And he wants you to learn to say that in response. Jesus, your grace is sufficient for me. No matter whether your situation gets better or worse, Jesus, your grace is sufficient for me. Can you say that this morning? Your grace is sufficient for me, Jesus. Even if I never get what I'm praying for right now, your grace is sufficient for me. Even if we never have a baby, your grace, Jesus, is sufficient. Even God, if you never bring me, that husband I'm praying for, that wife I'm praying for, your grace is sufficient for me. Even if this relationship doesn't get better, God, your grace is sufficient for me. They're not easy words to pray. Well, maybe they're easy to say, but they're hard to mean. But as you pray that in faith, you pray knowing that his grace truly is enough. His presence is more than enough because he's already carried everything that you are facing. So I want to just give us an opportunity this morning, as we draw this to a close, just to pray the kind of prayer that Hannah prayed and to, and to learn to, to practice this in our own lives. And I want to just give you some time as we go through communion this morning to come honestly before God with whatever you are facing and pour out your heart to the Lord. At a certain point, we're called to actually live this. And this is the posture of an open heart towards God is one that says, in whatever grief, in whatever anguish I'm facing, God, I'm going to bring it to you. He already knows what you're carrying. He just invites you to consciously bring it into his presence. And so as we take communion this morning, we're just going to have a few minutes. where I don't know what that looks like for you. It may may mean just kneeling down. I remember a, a, a morning right here where... Several years ago, I was struggling with with chronic back pain for several months before I ended up having to have surgery, and there was one morning here, and we were singing, I don't know what the song was, Come Come to the Altar, I think, The Father's Arms Are Open Wide, that one, and it just broke me, and I ended up, I think, kneeling on the ground, and tears in my eyes, and just praying those words, and if that's what it looks like for you, that's okay. I know some of you, some of you guys are like, I'm never going to do that, I'm just going to suck it up, buttercup. Okay, well, just be open to what the Lord might do in your life. Listen, it doesn't need to be dramatic. I'm not saying it needs to be a big emotional demonstration. For you, it might look like sitting there and taking a deep breath and just sitting with whatever you're going through in the presence of Jesus and being aware that he is there, he is with you, and he's got this. That's it. That's fine. It's the quiet, tender work of the Spirit. It doesn't have to be anything. But whatever it looks like for you, it may be something outward. It may be just raising your hands upward towards God. It may just be sitting in quietness and taking communion. But can I encourage you to take Hannah's words, take Hannah's life, take Hannah's prayer, and really believe that this is there to teach us how to pray. And this is a way of praying that is so good for our soul, so good for our heart, and that God delights when we bring the difficult things and the difficult parts of our life to Him. Especially if there's something you're going through that you've never really, properly, fully brought before God, now's the time. Today's the time to do that. So we're going to take communion together. And this is the perfect context because we're celebrating the broken body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus poured out. And so we're remembering he's carried this. This was laid upon him. And so just allow Jesus' presence and grace just to infuse your own life. Be refreshed by his spirit and be reminded that he's with you in what you're facing. Let's pray and we'll take communion together. Jesus, thank you that even now you're here and you're ministering to your people. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us today just as you are with Hannah. And God, you are the same God, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, God of Hannah. You are here today and you're inviting us to come just as you invited Hannah to come. And you're the same God who heard her prayer as she was pouring out her soul And you are still the same God inviting us to come today and pour out our soul to you. God, help us to respond uh, with open hearts to you. Lord, help us to respond uh, without being inhibited, without being afraid of coming to you. I just want to pray for those this morning that may feel a sense of shame in in bringing things to you or, or Lord, are angry at you. There's something there that's just blocking them from truly coming to you. Jesus, would you just gently just take that away and just show yourself to them as a God who loves them, a Father whose arms are outstretched, who is just welcoming. As you welcomed Hannah, you welcome us. So God, help us just to rest in your presence, bring all that we are, all that we're carrying to you, and trust that your mercy is enough. Your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that all this is possible because of your body that was broken for us and your blood poured out for us. So we give ourselves and all of our troubles to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.